Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Attentier, attentier, which is, of course, Dutch and indeed Flemish for Achtung, Achtung. Uh, correct me on the pronunciation, please. I expect R.G. Pullison will be in to um, straighten me out there. It seems only appropriate to lose, use the language of the Low Countries in the week that marks the 80th anniversary of the time those same countries were brought to their lowest ebb by the invading German troops. In fact, Sunday was the anniversary of the British Expeditionary Force Commander General Lord Gort ordering his troops to fall back to the Scheldt River. Now... If only we had one of those, you know, bookish, knowledgeable historians to hand, one of those chaps who knows what this all means. But wait, who do I see emerging from the Wiltshire mist in battle dress and flying goggles via the miracle of the internet? That's right. It's none other than James Holland, author of such well-known tomes as War in the West, Volumes 1 and 2. But not as yet. Volume, volume, we, no spoilers, but Volume 3 is not not yet complete, is it, James? It's not what yet. What happens at the end? Can well, I was going to do it this year, but the trouble is I'm not going to be able to get to um, half the archives I need to get to. Um, yeah. Yeah, or certainly yeah. I can't plan on it. So it makes it all a bit difficult. Yeah. And obviously you can't cut any corners with um, Warner West 3. So yeah, it's just on hold. It'll, no. it'll, be, it'll be done for no. 2022, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. A couple of things have caught our eye. Yes. One of the things, uh, one of the things I, uh, um, I wanted to talk about was this um, Lord Ashcroft. Um, we'll, get, we'll get to the other thing in a minute because we do need to talk about both these things. Lord Ashcroft has tweeted today. Yeah. It's the it's a sort of classic of the genre and he should I personally think he should know better because he knows he knows his stuff. But he tweeted, perhaps if World War 2 happened the questions would include what um can I have more clarity in the your country needs you slogan it's too ambiguous. Well that's the first world war, Malad. First of all, why aren't you doing enough to prevent these air raids? That was why aren't you doing enough to prevent these air raids? That is that there was a raging daily debate about that and you had the contrast between what central government was trying to do what local government was trying to do or had tried to do and had failed to do in some instances the lack of provision that was completely locally based and plenty of grumbling and, and also and also uh, lots of people fire uh, and they were ordered to fire all their guns all the time to make it sound like there were more anti-aircraft guns than there really were yeah yeah, yeah exactly because they hadn't got enough um, uh, why does the does the siren apply to everyone? Well, yes, it dis- did, but people chose to do what they wanted. So some people didn't go into <laughs> airway shelters. So that's the, um, there are only male and female toilets in the airway shelter, and I don't identify as either. Ah, come on, anachronism, back off. Right, this res- um, res- uh, respirator haversack has a leather strap, and I'm a vegan. Again, I mean, again, that's, that's foolish anachronism rubbish, of the worst. That's silly. Yeah, why can't I have almond milk on my ration card? Well, almond milk, because it hasn't been invented, invented yet, then. you muppet. Um, uh, I find the uh, term blackout offensive. Ah, oh, God. God. I find the lack of colour options within military uniforms oppressive. Yes, which is why, of course, everyone customised their uniforms. Yes, and vegetarians had their own ration cards, I am uh, uh, informed by one of our... Um, well, if it was QI, we'd call him an elf. But this isn't... They're not elves on this show. They're, they're um, troopers. Yeah. Troopers. Information troopers deep within our... Um, Trooper uh, McCarthy. Information frontline. I mean, everyone used to customise uniforms. This was the thing. I mean, and this is the thing that time immemorial is that British, especially officers, have customised their uniforms and done what they want with them. And in the end, you know, Montgomery had one rule about uniforms in Eighth Army, which was no top hats, famously. 
Yes. He saw a man with a top and, hat. And, 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 and my great hero, Phil Marshall Alexander, he had his own hatter develop um, his peat caps on the Russia, a, a little bit like the Russian model, because he thought they'd yeah, cut a dash. And then finally, why didn't we have stockpiles of Spitfires at the start of this conflict? We did! That's the point! How else did we win the Battle of Britain? Uh, and, I mean, it's just, honestly. And the thing is, I mean, it, you know, and uh, you know, we, we will next week, I think, be talking to David Edgerton, who makes basically this exact point. He says yep. Spitfires, Spitfires, the provision for Spitfires was laid down in 1935. So it's not like Britain enters the war in 1939 with her trousers down. It's, it's just... It's, he should he should know better. But well, I but I don't think I, I think he's, that, he's a he's a great collector. He's obviously been a big supporter of the Bomber Command yeah. Memorial and all the rest of it. And and but, yeah. you know he's he's donated a lot to the Imperial War Museum. And he's done lots of great works. Yeah. But I've met him a few times and he's perfectly civil and everything. And I did a TV show with him once. Yeah. But I I didn't get the impression there was a huge amount of knowledge there. I'm I'm not going to lie. The thing is he's being he's being provocative. And if you want to get I mean if you a, bit, a large chunk of people who were complaining about. The war in itself in thirty nine forty were conservative MPs. <laughs> it's Inclu- very you know, true, and, and and the conservative top brass who'd who'd backed appeasement, Halifax in particular, who would have would Hall- is Halif- I mean, who's the equivalent of Halifax? If we're going to compare to the Second World War, who's the equivalent of Halifax? The Tories saying the politicians right now going, ah, oh, lockdown's not worth it. Quit lockdown. Uh, we've all overreacted. This isn't the threat. That everyone says it is. Let's let's throw the towel in on this one. Who's Lord Halifax right now? And I, I, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna have that, if he insists on that conversation, then I insist on asking him: Is he Lord Halifax or not? <laughs> anyway, That's but something. That, I mean, this is just this is just me. This is just me feeling itchy because of one tweet. There's something that's got your um, oh, that yeah, got your dander up, isn't it, James? Well, also because about eight people have sent it to me. What do you think of this, then, James? <laughs> eh? Okay, so, <laughs> so, so, this this has annoyed me on two levels. Um, right, so what's okay. happened is Anthony Beaver has had his book on Arnhem finally published in the US because the USC, yeah. I presumably see. Market Garden is a predominantly American, uh, British effort, oh, um, yeah, completely yeah. obviously forgetting the crucial role played by one particular general in their <coughs> airborne division. Um, and, um, the independent company know who we're talking about. We know who we're talking about. <laughs> um, um, anyway, um, uh, so anyway, for whatever reason, it's finally coming out in, in, in the US. And Anthony's good friend, Max Hastings, and they're very, very good, old, old mates. They're competitive with one another, but they're, they're old, old friends. Um, yeah. has written a review for the New York Times, which in itself is really, really not on. Because whenever I've written reviews for the, the um, New York Times, um, uh, review of books, which I have to say has only been about twice, I've had to sign away my life and say that I haven't any connection with anybody. I don't know these people. I've got nothing that would bias or influence my review, blah, 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 blah. And actually, the same yeah. for the Wall Street Journal. And actually, the Wall Street Journal recently asked me to review Max's book on, on the dams raid. And I said to them, yeah. I, I will do so, but I just want you to know that I do know Max. I mean, I, you know, I don't know him very yeah. well, but I do know him. And they went, will that influence your, um, your review? And I went, nope. And uh, they went, OK, fine. But there are checks. So the idea that that Max is writing a balanced and objective view of Anthony's book is really, <laughs> and, and it shouldn't be a back scratching exercise, and it and it and it is, 
uh, and you see this time and time again in reviews in in books in newspapers of, of books and newspapers private eye always very hit hot on this at christmas aren't they where they do the thing where everyone recommends each other's books yeah it's just nauseating they, they lay it out it's where everyone nauseating just each i books. Yeah, just yeah, can't yeah. bear it but anyway um, yeah. so, that, so that in itself is a bit naughty, but it's kind of fine. But the big thing is, is that Max completely slags off the British soldier of World War II and just says, this is it. Yeah. It proves it once and for all that the British were crap and the Germans are really good. Well, let me read Let me read the first two sentences, because actually I, I got I got sent it. <laughs> what do you think about this? Exactly yeah, the same exactly thing. Exactly the same, yeah. And 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 I and I read the first two sentences and then I put it down on Sunday to not. I thought I'm not reading. I'm not going to read this because it's just going to, just going <laughs> to. Not you too. And then I and then ten ten minutes before we we set this Zoom up, I went. I thought, oh, I bet I'm going to have to read it. On I, they were better. First sentence, they were better. Second sentence, man for man, German soldiers fought more effectively in World War Two than their Allied counterparts did. Right. And, and, and then it and then it goes on to, you know, and this is illustrated no more clearly than at Arnhem. Now, the thing is, the thing with that is, is <laughs> it. Uh, and, and again, I'm, I'm plugging next Thursday, not this Thursday, because that's Philippe Sands again. But the Thursday afters podcast with David Edgerton, we talk about we talk about Britain's war machine with him. And he says, the problem is you what you have here is an explanation for something. And it's explaining something that didn't happen. <laughs> the, 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 the explanation that's been taken on life is is explaining something that isn't what occurred so you've got two things wrong in the pa- and and i've always felt and i remember i remember when i went to the borgie boo ridge the first time first time i went there when i was an adult not with my dad when we got lost around there in the car and he uh, bawled me out for bad map reading um <laughs> we, we got to the top of the Bor- borgie boo ridge and i was interviewing a guy from a um tank regiment and he said and we didn't use it in the programme because my producer said, oh, God, we can't use it. He goes, oh, the likes of Max Hastings says we were useless soldiers. In, our case, in that case, how did we get to the top of this fucking ridge? <laughs> like, well, well, they were better than us, but we still got up here. And, you, and he goes, you look at it. Look all the way down there. They can see it's coming miles off. You're like, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, it's amazing. How You know, and it, and it's just this It's just this thing. Um, that. Um, well, also, the other problem is, is, anyway. is, is, is what, what he's saying is man for man. He's not saying organisation for organisation. He's saying man for man. And that that is just simply bollocks because it depends yeah. which man, which unit, when, where, what stage yeah. of the war, a whole yeah. host of factors. But if you're going man for man as an average, as a mean over the whole six, nearly six years of war, I just think that's absolute nonsense. Utter nonsense. Yeah. I mean, you also got to accept, and this is not kind of, I'm really not trying to sound jingoistic here, but no one, no army in the Second World War makes more ground for the less for, for a loss of fewer lives than the British army. That's surely your metric. Yeah. Well, it's a pretty good metric, isn't it? And if it, and if that yeah. is your metric, then that makes that man for man, the British army are considerably better than the Germans, whose war dead is around nine million. You know, and yeah. and it's just it's just a, an absolute nonsense. And the idea that that I mean, and don't forget, this is a book about Arnhem. So the idea yeah, yeah. that the the British paratroopers at Arnhem. Are, be- are worse man for man than the Germans they're coming yeah. up against at Arnhem is just absolute nonsense. Well, because it's, because after, after all, they're being airborne soldiers. It's asymmetric. So you've got you've got um, armoured vehicles against blokes who can't deploy armour. 
and they right. they last nine days. Um, but it also uh, it's it's also the wrong metric because it shouldn't. It's not man for man. It's army against army with all that goes with it, all that long tail, and yes, dare I say it, the operational level. I mean, it, it really is all yes. that stuff. You know, it is. It's that big yeah, yeah. picture stuff. That is what is missing from the narrative of those books. Is is and I've said yeah. it before, but let's just stress it again. What they do is they focus incredibly heavily on the strategic level and the tactical level. Uh, and their sympathies, yeah. and particularly Max's, lies very firmly with the poor bastards that have to do the fighting at the bottom or the civilians who are being caught up in this maelstrom. Yeah. And there yeah. is a real yeah. visceral anger from him at the commanders and the fact that so many people lost their lives. But that being so, then he should be praising the British because they're far more careful of people's lives than everybody else's. I mean, OK, yeah. not Arthur Harris, perhaps, but why is Arthur Harris doing what they're doing? They're doing it to limit the number of lives lost of your own side. And, and the job yes, of your big, war big leaders picture, yeah. is, is yeah. to win the war as comprehensively and quickly as you possibly can for the fewest amount of deaths and casualties on your of your own people. And the British do that pretty efficiently. And actually, the Americans do it pretty efficiently as well, although the, the Americans are more gung-ho, not as careful with men's lives as the British are, all tied up with the fact that they haven't lost an entire generation in the in the First World War. Um, there's also yeah. kind yeah, of, yeah, you know, yeah. there's exceptions to that, like Patton, who's a sort of, you know, he's a bit vainglorious. And is, I mean, it's really interesting. I think the Third Army has the highest casualties of any um, any Allied yeah. army in the, in the Second World War. Uh, and it's commanded by Patton. But, you know, it, it, it's all tied up with this whole idea of sort of, you know, British sort of stopping for tea and sort of, sorry, old chap, can't do it tonight, you know, because we've run out of, you know, run out of daylight or, or you know, because I haven't had tiffin yet and all this kind of nonsense. Yeah. Um, but but there is a reason why we constantly reorganise our, our line when we come up to... Because what happens is, because we've worked out that the Germans always counterattack, if you can't bulldoze your through, way through immediately, what you then do is wait for your the weight of your force to come up, reorganise yeah, yeah. and then redeploy. And that's, yeah. that is a very, very sensible way of doing things. And of course, it does take a little bit more time on occasion. But that is also because yeah. you've got the problems of trying to moving all that mechanisation. But it is well, mainly and, and because tanks... fighting an organised, well-prepared, properly deployed um, battle basically means you're then deploying your firepower. And it is the firepower that attrits and grinds down the Germans and makes sure you win. And yeah. obviously what you don't want yeah. to do, and this is a really strict policy of the British, is once you've taken ground, you don't lose it. And the last time we do that is in North Africa. And that is the point when they go back to the Alamein line and Alexander takes over as commander-in-chief of the Middle East and, and Monty comes over as 8th Army and they go, there will be no more reverses. And that is it. And, they, yeah. and they, the only other time where they lose ground, and, and they do so deliberately, of course, is with Slim and 14th Army around Imphal. But otherwise, yeah. and that is a quite deliberately deliberate policy to grind down the Japanese 15th Army, but but otherwise the policy is is to take land, hold on to it, not take it, and then lose 20 kilometres. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, this is just the first two sentences of this review, right? This is our review of the first two sentences of this review. <laughs> Basically, we haven't got into the we haven't got into the. Into the I rest have spent of the whole I mean, the, morning with my fingers hovering over the two column on my inbox, saying to yeah. hovering about whether I email Max and go, "Well, mate, that was." I out mean, of the order. thing is. The, the, I mean, the thing is, is uh, and after all, the famous thing about the tanks are stopping for tea, and Major Julian Cook saying, oh, there wasn't enough aggression, and then Dick Winters saying they weren't aggressive. And, you know, by the time Lord Carrington, I mean, the, the yet-to-be Lord Carrington, gets across Nymagen Bridge, I mean, 
d- d- days later than he ought to have done for various reason. Um, um, the one reason. I mean, that that he's there's, he's just got four tanks, so he can't. He hasn't got his FOOs. He hasn't got. Hasn't um, got infantry. Inf- prop- he hasn't got coordinated infantry support. He's got American infantry support in the form of the 101st, but but not not the people he should be moving forward and and all that. And what they're not, and like you say that and and the lights failing and tanks at night is a bad is is a bad thing against the against the Germans who are very expert at infiltrating against tanks. So you know it's I mean anyway anyway that's that's the first two sentences of that review. We'll do the next two sentences in our following podcast. Right, we have. Oh, um... and it's really really got my goat. <laughs> I've I've been feeling irritated by it all morning. I've got to say it's really <laughs> really really annoyed Excellent. me. Excellent. Right. He's well, a nice chap, though, Max. I'll give him that. He's a really nice. No, guy. I don't. The thing is, I don't <laughs> yeah. doubt it, and I've always, uh, you know, uh, um, it's just, I mean, Normandy, Normandy. His book about Normandy, you know, is, I remember reading that in a pair with Carlo Deste, and you just think this doesn't explain anything. But you it's know, also going back to all the. Do you, I mean, have you have you read the Slam Marshall stuff that was written just after the war? Where he worked out, yeah. I and mean, the whole thing—they're kind of sort of that you know, the, uh, yeah, Germany's worth four yeah. times one. This was mm. done by completely bogus analysis of bogus statistics, um, yeah. and has you know, in academic circles, it's just kicked into touch such a long time ago. I mean, it's it's absolutely yeah. old news, and yet it's the stuff that on which you know a lot of people have written their written their books Carlo Desti and Max you know being but two well anyway lots of correspondence from you in recent weeks it's almost as if half the nation were trapped at home twiddling their thumbs watching war movies or listening to second world war <laughs> podcasts um, uh, we've got a very interesting question from Colin Houston one of our members of the independent company over on our Patreon um, Colin asked was the Sanazar raid effective or a waste of lives well this is open to massive debate but what did we what we did think would be interesting was to ask some people who know a lot about the subject and well I mean, we're very fortunate. We have a, 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 one of the descendants of the man who led the raid. Got, got a VC. Got a VC. And like one of those Victoria Crosses where it said, not only, for your, not only for your bravery, but everyone involved, wasn't it? It was one of those sort of... Um, yeah, but he uh, was unbelievably uh, like, rave. I mean, he, yeah, you know, you know, I mean, he was brave. worthy of it in his own right. I mean, five VCs, yeah. it's a single unit action which got the most VCs at any point in the entire Second World War. So this email comes from Zaki B.T. McKerrow. Uh, great-grandson of Stephen Beatty, with input from Anna Beatty, granddaughter, and also the Lieutenant Commander's son, Nick Beatty. Um, uh, um, my great-grandfather, Lieutenant Commander Stephen Halden Beatty, was the commander of the HMS Campbelltown, the destroyer which famously rammed into the Normandy dry dock in saint on March in March 1942 during Operation Chariot. The aim of the raid was to destroy the dock, which was the only one capable of facilitating the turpits on the French Atlantic coast and thus prevent the Germans deploying turpits to the Atlantic. At the time, there was great fear within the Admiralty that turpits currently docked in Trondheim could potentially break out into the Atlantic, just as her sister ship Bismarck had done the previous year when she sank HMS Hood, the pride of the Royal Navy. The Bismarck had distracted the attention of much of the home fleet. Six battleships, two carriers, 13 cruisers and 21 destroyers were committed to hunting Bismarck for the best part of a week. 1,100 ships were lost in the Atlantic that year. The very real fear was that turpits in the Atlantic would significantly raise this total. So was the raid effective? Well, in terms of of, of its objective, unquestionably, yes. The dock was completely obliterated. It did knock out the possibility of turpits venturing into the Atlantic. With the benefit of hindsight, however, we know that, in fact, Hitler had deemed turpits too valuable to operate in the Atlantic. And with the well-known fuel issues Germany faced throughout the war, they were unwilling to send a warship requiring so much fuel 
or uh, are on so risky a mission. However, the Admiralty were not aware of the German position and so their concerns were understandable. There were less tangible results too, despite the devastation wrought upon the small town of San Jose and the course of the raid. When the surviving veterans returned to the t town in 46-47, the French Premier told them, you were the first to give us hope. And to this day, the townspeople thank the families of all those involved on the anniversary of the raid every year. The spectacular and audacious nature of the raid helped the British cause with the Americans too. At this point of the war, the Yanks were unimpressed with Allied efforts. This was a major and completely unanticipated hit and as such a PR success, some good news at last. The main strategic negative of the raid was that it led to increased focus on the Atlantic Wall due to this breach of their defences, arguably leading to a better defended Normandy for the D-Day landings. And the human cost was high. 169 lives were lost that night. 215 men were captured. But as high as that was, roughly two-thirds of the combined ops force, it can't have been a surprise. The raid was planned with the hope that they could get everybody home, but little exception of expectation of doing so. It was so dangerous, all the soldiers were offered a choice of whether to go or not, though not the sailors! Exclamation <laughs> mark. Yes, this is from someone who's a naval relative. The crazy plan was simple. If full of flaws to sail a fleet of ships, including Campbelltown, and 18 motor launches six miles up the Loire, under the noses of the Germans, to evade detection long enough to get Campbelltown there in one piece, ram the dock with enough speed and precision to breach the dock gate, to land all the soldiers, and for them to rendezvous with the motor launches, whose remit was to pick everyone up, sail the six miles back out to sea, and that's home. The chances of success were not high. In fact, Campbelltown didn't explode at 0430 as planned, but at noon the next day when the Germans were swarming all over and just as my great-grandfather Beatty was being interrogated by the local German garrison commander about the reasons for the ramming, which caused minimal damage to the dock gate, the four and a half tonnes of Amatol explosives <laughs> packed into the Campbelltown's hull oh my blew God. up. God, I imagine yeah. that would have rattled the crockery. Crikey. Yeah, 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 the did. dry dock... A dry dock was wrecked. 360 German troops, including 40 senior officers and civilians who were touring the ship, were killed, and the glass from the window in the interrogation room shattered all over the floor. The Normandy dry dock was out of action for the rest of the war. The raid is famous for the widespread bravery that took place. 89 members of the raiding party were awarded decorations, including five VCs. My great-grandfather found out that he'd been awarded a Victoria Cross only when the commander of his prisoner of war camp called a special parade, announced to the camp that Lieutenant Commander Beatty had been given a VC, read the citation. His VC was in recognition of his bravery under heavy fire from many gun emplacements surrounding the Loire Estuary and also to the crew of the Campbelltown and saluted him. Each year, commemoration of the raid is held at Saint-Nazaire by the Saint-Nazaire Saint Society, of which my grandfather Nick Beattie is the president. I attended the commemoration a few years ago, which was an absolute honour, so shout out to them too. Thanks to Zaki, Anna and Nick for that brilliant account. I love it. I, I love mean, that story. Is, I love the whole story. I mean, the whole th it is, it is, it is absolutely I mean, there's, there's, bre breathtaking. It really isn't is. And there's, it, some, there's some other stuff that I think is worth saying. So, so the big thing is the Sanazar is not on the Atlantic coast. It's, it's no, no, a no. number of miles inland. And so they were thinking, yeah. well, how do we do this? So the idea was to, was to disguise the Campbelltown as a German ship. So they changed the funnels, put up German flags, all the rest of it. Yeah. Uh, and and they were also going to go. Um, all the the motorcrafts that were going to go with them were not going to go down the river. They were going to go on the mud over the mud flats, yeah. but, which was a part of a particularly high spring tide at that time, which meant they could go across them. So they did. So they weren't under the yeah. normal uh, down the normal kind of river channels. And everything seemed to be absolutely fine. But but what happened was the RAF came over and bombed Sanazé that night. And the whole idea was to try and kind of distract them. But in actual fact, what yeah. happened was they then kind of sort of hovered around, not dropping anything. And so the comments yes, they were told to drop drop bomb one at a time, weren't they? To 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 sort of 
create this kind of confusion. And so the commandant in uh, San Jose thought, hmm, that's a bit, bit, you know, I smell a rat here. <laughs> so realised that they were doing it as a kind of, you know, as a, as a, as a kind of feint, effectively, a distraction. So then yeah. switched on all the, you know, ordered the guys on the uh, the flak batteries to switch on their searchlights and, of course, lit up the Campbelltown immediately. So they still <laughs> had several miles to go when they were under full attack. And, yeah. you know, a lot of the casualties took... A lot of the, the guys that were wounded and killed were killed on that run-in before they actually yeah. got to got to San Azair itself. They were being absolutely pummeled. So much so they thought, oh, sod this, let's get rid of the German flags and put up our own, our own ensign instead, <laughs> uh, which they did. Amazing. But they rammed it all absolutely perfectly. I think they were kind of four minutes late or something until when they were scheduled yeah. to be there. And, and then there was this huge yeah. ding-dong because once they've done what, they've, what they're supposed to do, they've then got to sort of go into San Azair, cause havoc and get the hell out of there again. Some by boat, but they got shot up and sunk. Others by kind of by foot, but most of them were, a lot of them were captured. I mean, some did get away um, but a lot of them were captured um but you, you you know he's right about the delayed action it didn't happen the the, the explosives didn't blow up till later on that 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 day when they're all being interrogated and of course they were all really down in the dumps because they thought well it's great that we got it to the dot but we haven't yeah, actually yeah. fulfilled the, the mission they're all being interrogated and two of the guys are being interrogated are by paul schmidt who is hitler's personal translator wow um interrogating mickey byrne who's who's one of the troop leaders in two commando uh, and um, the German said, the Schmidt says, to him, you know, how on earth could you expect to win the war when, you know, U-boats are marauding over half the half the seas and the Japanese are over the other? Uh, and the sergeant turns to him and goes, goes, they might have control of the seas, but only at the bottom. It's absolutely yeah. brilliant. Um, and Mickey Byrne is, uh, is another of those ones. He's, when he's captured, his uh, photos taken of him flicking Vs. God bless him. It's absolutely brilliant. But, the, you know, the commandos, they go in, there's 265 yeah, but commandos. Don't forget, James, don't forget, James. Don't forget, man for man, the German soldier's better. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, they, they were they were absolutely awesome on that raid. So to, so what the, the kind of on the was it worth it question, it's a really interesting one. So, yes, they were really short of fuel and, 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 and operating those huge, great um, battleships is is obviously incredibly costly in terms of fuel. But just because at the time they weren't planning to use it doesn't mean so they weren't ever going to use it because Hitler's famous for changing his mind. He uses, changes his mind all the time. Yeah. And if that's all they've yeah. got and, and it's worth a punt, I mean, you know, a, a battleship and some destroyers and, and a light cruiser yeah. going out into the Atlantic, if well, they I, get through the screen, I've, they're going to cause mayhem. You know, the, the, the before the First World War, there's always this thing where, the, or during the First World before and during the First World War, there's always this thing where the Navy, the, the, they, they don't want to fight the Germans this year. It's like, you know, you, there's always this thing of, can we just put off this encounter because because we've got such a big, lovely, shiny fleet, we don't want to risk it, right? The Bismarck had distracted the attention of much of the home fleet. Yep. Six battleships, two carriers, 13 cruisers, 21 destroyers. Now, who is winning that naval war? Whether the, whether the Bismarck's at the top or the bottom of the ocean, six battleships, two carriers, 13 cruisers, 21 destroyers committed to dealing with that one ship. You, when you look at it in those terms, you know, uh, wh whatever happens to the dry dock for the Tirpitz or whatever, or the Bismarck, it's kind of... It's it's clearly only a matter of time. Well, I think I I can I can see that in the in the beginning of 1942, you know, the the, the but it's belt and braces, isn't it? You're doing everything you can to deny the enemy opportunity. Exactly that. So this is this takes place on the night of the 26th, 27th of March, 1942. So at that stage, we're kind of getting we're we're in the second happy time off the east coast. So the U-boats are causing yeah. havoc, but but we can see a way forward to winning 
the Battle of the Atlantic. You know, the quality of U-boat crews is going down. Um, our technology is, is, is gaining ground. You know, the, um, the mid-Atlantic point where there's no air umbrella is getting less and less and soon to be snuffed out by the end of the war yeah. and by the end of the year. And obviously the following, you know, um, 14 months later, the Battle of the Atlantic is won. But in 1942, still, you know, still an awful lot to, to do. And, and you can't properly plan if you don't know how much shipping's coming across the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. That's the key thing. And I would say that the risk of the Tirpitz coming out Fuel shortages aside, is worth the effort to go and do a high risk, a high risk strategy like that, uh, a high yeah. risk plan like that. And the bottom line well, is, actually, is, it is, it is the largest dry dock in Europe at the time. It's five hundred yards long. It was built specifically to house and, and treat the Normandy, you know, the great yeah. transit, um, transatlantic liner, and it is out of action for the rest of the war after this raid. Yeah, so, yeah. so. Yeah. Whether they would use it or not is neither here nor there. The bottom line is they definitely aren't going to use it after that because it is it is smashed. It is out of action. And yeah. I would say that yeah. 169 dead for an operation of that scale and size and magnitude is actually, in the scheme of things, comparatively well, how small. Lost, how many men were lost um, uh, on the hood? Yeah, 900 and something. Well, there you go. So let's say the Tirpitz gets out, sinks another ship like the hood. Then you, you do that. There you you're go. There's, big there's, time, your, aren't you? there's your balance. Your big. You're a bit credit big time. I mean, it's interesting because one of the reasons the Bismarck, the Bismarck uh, does get uh, uh, into trouble, isn't it? It's because it it doesn't refuel when it goes in at Brest Harbour, and the Navy, the Royal Navy, had this thing: you whenever you're in port, you refuel regardless, whenever. And the Kriegsmarine don't have that because obviously they're worried about they're watching their fuel, yeah. so that. Uh, the knock-ons there. But I mean, yes, I mean, if you look at, if you see it simply in those terms, how many people died on the hood, how many people died in this raid, that it, it explains itself. And also you've got, again, you've got one of these special forces outfits, commandos burning a hole in your pocket, highly trained, highly motivated people. You've got this idea of raiding culture. You've also got precedent from the Zeebrugge raid where um, uh, harbours yeah. are rammed and ships are detonated in the harbour from the First Admiral World War. Keys, yeah. So, so, yeah, exactly. So this is this is sort of uh, another way of looking at it. This is business as usual. This is how the Navy, what the Navy does is it closes down the enemy's opportunities. And, you know, the, yeah, the, completely. The, the, and also, you've got to remember that it's, it's, a, it's a combined operations rate. That's what combined operations are. It's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. how you utilise your yeah. naval forces with, with specialist ground forces. And, and that's what they're doing. And, and as you say, it's a bit like it's a bit like deploying the airborne troops later on in the war. I mean, you know, you train them. They're there. They're all volunteers. I mean, no one asked them to become a commando. Um, you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're all doing it because they've, they've chosen to be there. This is what they're for. And, you know, just before you've got yeah. the Bruneval raid um, in February 1942. Yep. Before that, you've got yep. the Vargso raid. You know, these are these are all successful yep. operations. They're, and they're attacking the Reich or, you know, the, the um, occupied territories of the, of the Third Reich all over the place. And it's and it's yeah. you also can't underestimate the kind of psychological advantage of, of a raid such as the Saint-Nazaire raid has on yeah. the Germans and, and what that does and, yeah. and how much it pisses them off, how much damage it causes and how and, and what a, a, a slight it is, an affront it is to, to everything that they stand for and they mean to yeah, demonstrate, yeah, yeah, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So, well, especially as they're giving off this, uh, their, their, their image projection, their propaganda is all about invincibility. And um, anyway, we need to take a, we, we need to take a very quick break. We'll be back in a second. Uh, time it takes to eat two chocolate biscuits and make a cup of tea.
Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, we've got a lot going on, so a few parish notices for you. Firstly, thanks to all of you for the positive responses to our interview with Philippe Sands. The good news is we spent two hours chatting with Philippe, and there's, there's a part two coming away on Thursday, in which we really get into the details of his story about the rat line. Otto Wechter, his wife Charlotte, and son Horst, all to the fore in that one. It's equally fascinating. Do not miss it. Um, my mum today said, oh, that Philippe Sands we have ways it's very good i didn't know she listened to the podcast so we flushed her out so uh... <laughs> she's given in i've had some i've had some really funny funny comments about 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 the pod this week so i've been talking to an amazing um guy who's stonemason called andrew zeminski um who's written oh, yeah. the most fantastic book about it's sort of a personal history of, of, of stonemasonry but it goes all the way from kind of you know West Kennet Longbarrow to Stonehenge and Avery through to Salisbury Cathedral right. to the influence of Moor, the wow. Moors on, on church architecture and and yeah. all the way through. I mean, it's just really, really interesting. Um, and he said, um, and he sent me an email that said, oh, I've been really enjoying the pod. And, and um, he said, obviously, you know, I won't mention a certain American general in the Airborne Division. And <laughs> so that was really nice. And then, um, and then I got a note from the head of Wiltshire Cricket the other day about kind of whether we we're allowed to use nets or not. And he said, "Oh, and by the way, mm-hmm. you know, enjoying listening to the the podcast on, you know, journey to work oh. and stuff. So it's 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 really nice to hear that it's sort of um, yes. the net is widening. It's getting out. It is nice, isn't it? To, to and now Mrs. People. Murray. <laughs> yeah, and now Mum. Mum has succumbed. Um, God bless her. Um, uh, I, I thought the things, the, 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 both of those podcasts with Philippe are fascinating, and I, I'm still, you know, that, that you that you have such a contrast between Otto, between Horst, you know, um, and Nicholas who, Frank, uh, and Nicholas Frank. It's just, it's, it's extraordinary, and also that that thing we talked about about and Nicholas Frank was basically the first of the the first of the Brass's children to go. I don't, you know, to break cover and say something. Um, anti is it's absolutely we get him on he's such a nice guy nicholas so on thursday night we will be live streaming again at 8 30 p.m uk time um there are now 1100 members of the independent company that that i mean we're verging on to <laughs> next stop next stop is a brigade isn't it well i think well we, i mean that we could call ourselves a regiment now couldn't we um and there are free audio books uh, daily discussions and debates plus a live tv tv version of the show every thursday night i'm getting lots more material on um the Sherwood Rangers, by the way, coming out. A whole, whole load of stuff came in today. Stuff I've never seen before. So brilliant, absolutely excellent. Brilliant. Uh, um, uh, yeah. So, uh, so that's Thursday is the live the live stream. Um, from Wednesday, May the twenty sixth, eighty years on from the most important week in British history. Well, no, I'll just I'll just I'll just contextualise this. Okay, so I was doing a talk. I was doing a talk about 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 Dunkirk. I was getting really carried away about it, and I was just thinking about all oh, this. You know, I was just telling them what happened. This incredible drama that took place. You know, it's not just the rescuing of the BEF. It's this huge political yeah. machinations that are going on between Halifax and Churchill and Chamberlain and so on. Yeah. You know, the stakes couldn't possibly be higher. And at the end of it, I just thought, I literally cannot think of a more important week in British history ever, where so much happened that that could have potentially imperiled our entire nation in in such a dramatic way so yeah i suddenly stood up and said and said and to my mind it was the most important week ever in british history and i sort of the more i thought about it the more i kind of think it probably was so anyway so we're going to do all that yeah. stuff well no i mean i i also think i think one of the really interesting things about dunkirk is very often in history you have um you have things where there's like 
where you really can't say that individuals are making decisions that actually pivotally change everything. You really can't say that about a lot of historical events. And, and you know, and that, that, that's, that's one of the things we accept now about history, that very often there are, you know, that, that, that things grind along in the way they do like tectonic plates. But th- this, this period of history, there are some people who make individual decisions that are massively, massively important. And they make those decisions constrained within the constraints of their of their circumstance yes but also because that's the decision they make because that's what they're like yep. you know or, or, or that's the conclusion they arrive at and you really really do I think genuinely and it's I mean it's rare enough in history this actually that there's a moment where what someone decides is the thing that influences everything I mean you know just before the, the 26th of course is the halt order and you get you burrow into the you burrow into the history you know you've got the close up order before it and then the halt order itself and you burrow into the history of that and actually look at who's saying what to who and then what they're writing their diary mm. afterwards and all that and there is one person who makes that decision and that is the, the probably the, I mean bef- before the most important it's, it sets up the most important week in British history yeah. so it's probably the most important decision in the last hundred years of history full stop. Yes. I would have thought. Yeah, you, I, I think you, you could certainly argue and argue convincingly that. Because on the Patreon, we, we discussed what if the halt order isn't given, you know, and, and the Patreon's amazing. The independent company arguing about this. No halt order, what happens? And, and we, we said, well, it kind of, it then sort of devolves into a political decision rather than anything anything you can do strategically. You know, the strategic will, you know, the, because actually there are, there are four levels. There's the tactical, operational, strategic, and then the political abo- uh, the, that hovers above all of them. None of them all happen without... They all interrelate, obviously. Uh, I mean, we'll talk about this, but obviously the whole order... The whole order is because the, you've got half the half the German army brass... Are it, or well, not even half. A, a section of them are into this blitzkrieg, no flanks, punch through, uh, Klotz and Nick Kleben, just get on with yeah, it. Yeah. Just, just get through. Get through at all costs, doesn't matter. And then the rest of them are going... Fuck, our flanks are exposed. Okay, yeah, yeah. My infant, my infantry aren't up yet. Oh mm-hmm. God! And so you have. I mean, it's, and von Rundstedt starts to panic, and of course yeah. he's always held up as this. He's held up as the best of the best of the German. Well, he's held up as a German. sort of steady ship, isn't he? And this is this is what's so interesting yeah, on both sides, whether German or British. It's the guys who are normally level-headed and clear-thinking, and you know, known for their good judgment, that are kind of found wanting. Yeah, and he 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 goes, oh, I'm not sure about this. So slow stuff down, and then Hitler goes, well, if von Rundstedt's nerves about it, I'm gonna, all right, stop. And 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 you know, to go back to my original point, this is one of those moments where one person's individual, their decision. You know, and we are we are then in the realms of the sort of the absolute lightning in the bottle, phantom stuff of yep. history. It's someone's personality, which 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 takes you away from the idea of the impersonal forces of history and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, don't, yeah. don't you think? And then yep. and then we get into Churchill, Churchill in the garden at Downing Street with Halifax. Just oh my god, it's a, it's a, whatever, whatever it was, Churchill said to Halifax. I mean, maybe it's I've Thank got god he said it. with a lap. Well, exactly. But what was it? I've got pictures of you with that Labrador. Um, uh, we, we, don't, <laughs> we don't know, do we? Because 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 then you're into the political world where there's the dark arts of politics, where how people exert yeah. personal pressure on each other. Were he not in the Lords, would have been Prime Minister, blah, blah, blah. And but, I mean, but, it's just, but it's just, just, just just think about what's... OK, so, so we're going to start on the 26th of, of May, because yeah. back in 1940, that was a Sunday. That was... A national day of prayer in Britain led by the king. Okay, what yeah. you know, we're so up the creek 
that the only yeah. thing left to us is to pray. I mean, that yeah. is basically what that is saying. That is how dire yeah. the situation is. And yet, a week later, fast forward that to the third of third of June, we're out of the woods. It's amazing. Well, I it's think absolutely that, amazing. Well, so what we're going to do is over, over, <laughs> over that over that week, I think every day we'll talk through the the day's events eighty years ago. We'll discuss that. Yep. We're going to have guests yep. on, aren't we? Including um, including Ingram. Ingram, my father is going to join man. us because. We're going to talk to Steve yep. Prince, who's the head of the Naval Historical Branch, who is just amazing. God, he's yep. so brilliant on all this stuff. The strategic yep. earthquake is what he calls it. Yep. Uh, and we'll have guests on, and yep. we'll do a little special. It'll be it'll be be on the kind of the main pod, won't it? Every single day, be great. The thing we're going to talk about with 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 Ingram and my dad um, is he researched what happened to my mother's father was in the Bucks Battalion, who were um, territorial battalion from Marlow in Buckinghamshire, light infantry. He was the adjutant and they ended up in a place called Harzerbrook, which is down the road from Cassell. Yes. Which is, and, um, and Cassell's this plug of hill in yeah, Flanders yeah, yeah. with a windmill on the top. That's a really striking, really striking town that you can see from all around. And a statue and, and of uh, down, Foch. That's right. Yeah. And a plaque for the Gloucesters. And down the, down the hill from there is Harzerbrook, where the Bucks Battalion ended up. And... Ten years or so ago, my father, maybe even a little bit longer than that, maybe 12 years ago, my father was instrumental in having a plaque put up at the place that was the orphanage where no. uh, Buck, where the Bucks Battalion headquarters um, made its last stand. Great. And, um, and, and I've got, you know, a load of photos from the unveiling, which I think we might, we, we'll, talk, we'll talk a little bit about this on Thursday for the live cast. I'll show you some of the pictures. Dad delved right into what, what happened to, to the to the Bucks Battalion, to this TA Battalion. Um, and the sort of, because the, the, they went up to the deal line, then back, you know, they, they did the whole yo-yo. Yeah. But the, it's their stand there. And the Royal Horse Artillery, who are also involved, and, and all these sort of, um, basically, and the sappers who all had to, as he put it, ditch their shovels and get out their rifles. You know, the, the, all the sort of, um, all the stuff that happens around the Bucks Battalion. And, and, and that's, uh, that's just before... Um, I think it's the 25th that that reaches its climax. So we'll 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 be talking about that with Ingram, and um, he hopefully um, he's getting pretty deaf now. Hopefully he'll hear all our questions, but he probably he'll pr- probably be happy if we don't butt in. Um, <laughs> if I'm honest with you, well, but, um, it'll, it'll well, be that, great. No, I'm really looking forward to that. And then uh, and we're gonna yeah, I mean, and Robin Schaefer as well, who um, uh, is going to bring us some German stuff. Has got um, correspondence from German soldiers, um, uh, uh, you know, so we'll hear what the other side thought of what was going on, which the I think... The other side of the hill. Yep. The other side of the hill, which is really fantastic. Um, anyway, um, a beauty of having a community of listeners is all the interaction um, and tangents we get led down. No sooner would we receive the question about Saint-Nazaire from Colin Houston when we received a DM on Twitter from another listener, Magnus, with this intriguing question. Hi, Great show and all that. You are both fantastic. Well done, etc., etc. I like this guy. I've been reading Battle of the Atlantic. Something new to learn about. I went down a Google wormhole when I read that after D-Day, Brestport held out until September 44 and Saint-Nazaire and other Breton ports didn't surrender until after VE Day. Despite France being liberated well before then, I understand that Ike bypassed them for a reason, invade Germany himself, but surely the Free French couldn't have been happy about the Germans still being there. Also, it wouldn't have taken all the all of the Allied army to take them. Were the were there battles and did they just hold out? Was it all just sealed off? Was it the whole town or just the docks? Reading about Saint Nazaire, then I found about U.S. Airman Alan McGee. 
which blew my mind. Assume that this is true. Well, the thing is, you had German festungs, didn't you? So that the, Hitler's whole thing was that he wasn't going to surrender ports. And preparation went into that very early on, as soon as the, basically as soon as the invasion began. Proper problem for the Allied effort. But it well, was another byproduct of the raid on Saint Nazaire was that it got massively reinforced. But you end up, you end up with you know um, uh, all of these basically Calais and all these places being invested and then left uh, and left to it. Really, there's no point fighting it out over these. Ports well, the, the Canadians get get Calais and Dunkirk and Graveline and all those places. Yeah, so they capture those. Um, before they go into the Scheldt campaign. Um, uh, yeah. but, but the ones in Britain, they're a complete waste of time. I mean, why, why would we want to yeah. waste any ordnance on that? I mean, we're not yeah. going to need them. We're never going to need them. Total waste of time. So they just said, OK, fine. Yeah. Stay there then. Because after all, Cherbourg, Cherbourg, the, the, uh, you know, the, they destroyed the dock, didn't they? So there's the, there's the thing, was well, no, even if we do take a place like this, they're going to destroy the harbour. Well, so also no, we've, got, we've just... now got loads of beaches and we've got, um, um, and we've got yeah. a Mulberry Harbour and that's doing it. Just fine, yeah. thank you very much. Yeah. You haven't got to go down the Cotentin yeah. Peninsula. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there was just absolutely no point in taking all those places. So yeah, they did. They just left them there. You're trying to go the most direct route to Germany, after all. Uh, and and Saint-Nazaire isn't the most direct route. Saint-Nazaire and Brittany is in, within the American bit. And the Americans are just, all they're interested in is a straight line to Berlin. I mean, you know, that's that's the strategy. Yeah, now the second thing um, uh, mentioned by Magnus was the cryptic reference to Alan McGee. Now, this is amazing, this. Alan McGee was an American ball turret gunner on a B-17. January 3rd, 43, he was bob- on a bombing, r- bombing run over San Jose. He left his turret when it was damaged by flak and found his parachute was torn and useless. More flak blew off a section of the right wing and McGee was thrown clear of the aircraft. He fell over 20,000 feet before crashing through the glass roof of the San Jose train station. Rescuers found him on the floor of the station. McGee was treated by the Germans, 28 shrapnel wounds, several broken bones, damage to his nose, eye, lung and kidney. His right arm was nearly severed. McGee was liberated in May 1940 from a POW camp and received the Air Medal for his meritorious conduct and the Purple Heart. He then lived to the age of 84 and died in 2003. I mean, oh Christ. I mean... I know a guy who I know a guy who parachuted. Uh, it was in the army. Um, he was in the Irish Guards, and he um, he jumped out of a plane. His parachute didn't open, and he he, he landed on a corrugated roof in. Yes, yes, I remember reading about that. Charlie, yeah, yeah. and he survived. Yeah. He, he had he had nothing more than a broken finger, little finger. And there's the guy who jumped out of um a Lancaster, isn't there? For fell out of Lancaster and um without a shoot and yeah did did the same kind of same kind of altitude and slid down some trees and landed in a snowdrift. Something. That's right, yeah. I mean, it can happen, but you've got the luck of the devil if if, if you survive a parachute drop without a parachute. Well, I think we've done we've done our time. Um, uh, keep the correspondence coming in. We love getting your stories. Um, they're a real Trevor trove, treasure trove. A Trevor trove is something else. That's a place full of Trevors. Um, remember. <laughs> Where do they make Trevors in a Trevor Trove? Remember part two, Philip Sands is on th- on Thursday. Um, it's the Rat Line and uh, really Philippe good stuff. Hinting, yeah, and he also he's also um, he tells us where that's taking him next, where um, where the Rat Line is yes. leading him to, yes, um, yes, yes. which is fascinating. Um, uh, a live stream on Thursday night. Four hundred ninety-five of you joined us last Thursday, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for listening. See you next time. Cheerio. Yeah, cheerio. <laughs>